Section 68 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Berta von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 16, Part 3. And now my hour of trial was again drawing nigh but it was so different this time from that other in which Frederick had to leave me to fight for the Augustenberger. This time he was at my side, the husband's proper post, diminishing through his presence and through his sympathy the sufferings of his wife. The feeling that I had him there was to me so calming and so happy that in it I almost forgot my physical discomfort. A girl! It was the fulfillment of my silent hope. The joys connected with the sun had already been given to us by my little Rudolph. We could now, in addition to these, taste those joys which such a fine little daughter promised to her parents. That this little Sylvia of ours would grow into a paragon of beauty, grace, and comeliness, we did not doubt for a single moment. How childish we both of us became over the cradle of this child! What sweet fooleries we spoke and acted there I will not even try to tell. Others than fond parents would not understand it, and all of them have no doubt been just as silly themselves. But how selfish happiness makes us! There came now a time for us, in which we really were far too forgetful of everything which lay outside of our domestic heaven. The terrors of the cholera week kept taking always more and more in my memory the shape of a vanished evil dream, and even Frederick's energy in the pursuit of his aim gradually abated. And it was no doubt discouraging, wherever one knocked at any doors with these ideas, to meet with shrugs of shoulders, compassionate smiles, if not a regular setting to rights. The world, as it seems, is fond not only of being cheated, but also of being made miserable. Wherever one tries to put forward any proposals for removing misery and woe, they are called utopian, a childish dream, and the world will not listen to them. Still Frederick did not let his aim fall quite out of sight. He plunged ever deeper into the study of international law, and got into correspondence by letter with Blunchli and other men learned in his branch. At the same time, and here with my companionship, he diligently followed other studies, chiefly natural science. He formed a plan for writing a great work on war and peace, but before setting to work on it, he wanted to prepare himself for it and instruct himself by long and comprehensive researches. I am, it is true, he said, an old royal and imperial colonel, and it would shame most of my equals in rank and age to dip into schooling, when one is an elderly man of office and rank, one thinks oneself usually clever enough to act independently. I myself a few years since had that respect for my own individuality, but when I had suddenly attained to a new point of view in which I got an insight into the modern spirit, then the consciousness of my want of knowledge came over me. Oh, yes, of all the gains that have now been made in the matter of new discoveries in all provinces of knowledge, there was nothing at all taught in my youth or rather the reverse was taught, so I must now, in spite of the streaks of grey on my temples, begin again at the beginning. The winter after Sylvie's birth we spent at Vienna in perfect quiet. Next spring we travelled to Italy. To travel and make acquaintance with the world was indeed a part of our new programme of life. We were independent and rich, and nothing hindered us from carrying it out. Small children are a little troublesome in travelling, but if one can take about a sufficient train of bun and nurses, the thing can be done. 
I had taken into my establishment an old servant who had once been nurse to me and my sisters, and then had married an hotel steward, and now was left a widow. This Mistress Anna was worthy of my fullest confidence, and in her hands I could leave my little Sylvia at home with perfect security at any time when we, i.e. Frederick and I, left our headquarters for several days on some excursion. Rudolph would have been just as well seen after by Mr. Foster, his tutor, but it often happened that we took the little eight-year-old boy with us. Happy, happy times. Pity that I then neglected the red books so much. It was exactly at this time that I might have entered so much that was beautiful, interesting, and gay. But I neglected it, and so the details of that year have mostly faded out of my recollection. It is only in rough outline that I can now recall a picture of it. In the Protocol of Peace I did find an opportunity to make a gratifying entry. This was a leading article signed B. Desmoulins, in which the proposal was made to the French government that it should put itself at the head of the European states by giving them the example of disarmament. Quote, in this way, France will make herself sure of the alliance and of the honest friendship of all states, which will then have ceased to be afraid of France, while they would desire her sympathy. In this way, the general disarmament would commence spontaneously, the principle of conquest would be given up forever, and the Confederation of States would quite naturally form a court of international law, which would be in a position to settle in the way of arbitration all disputes which could never be decided by war. In so acting, France would have gained over to her side the only real and only lasting power, namely right, and would have opened for humanity in the most glorious manner a new era. From Opinion Nationale, July 25, 1868. This article, of course, got no attention. In the winter of 1868-69, we went back to Paris, and this time, for we wished to make acquaintance with life, we plunged into the great world. It was rather a tiring process, but yet, for a time, it was very pleasant. In order to have some home, we had hired a small residence in the quarter of the Champs-Élysées, whither we could also sometimes invite in turn our numerous acquaintance, by whom we were invited every day to a party of some kind or another. Having been introduced by our ambassador at the court of the Tuileries, we were invited for the whole winter to the Mondays of the Empress, and besides this, the houses of all the ambassadors were open to us, as well as the salon of Princess Mathilde, the Duchess of Mouchy. Queen Isabella of Spain, and so on. We made the acquaintance also of many literary magnates, not of the greatest, however, I mean Victor Hugo, as he was living in exile. But we met Renan, Dumas père et fils, Octave Feuillet, George Sand, Arsène Housset, and some others. At the house of the last named we also were present at a masked ball, when the author of the Grande Dame gave one of his Venetian fight in his splendid little hotel on the Avenue Friedland. It was the custom that the real Grande Dame should go there under the protection of their masks, along with the little ladies, well-known actresses, and so forth, who were making their diamonds and their wit sparkle there. We were also very industrious visitors to the theatres. At least three times a week we spent our evenings either at the Italian opera, where Adelina Patti, just married to the Marquis de Caux, was enchanting the audience, or at the Théâtre Français, or even at one of the little boulevard theatres to see Hortense Schneider as the Grand Duchess of Gerolstein, or some of the other celebrities of operetta or vaudeville. 
It is wonderful, however, how, when one is once plunged into this whirl of splendor and entertainments, this little great world appears to one all of a sudden so terribly important, and the laws which prevail therein of elegance and chic, it was even then called chic, as laying on one a kind of solemnly undertaken duty, to take at the theatre a less distinguished place than a stage-box, to appear in the bois with a carriage whose equipage should not be faultless, to go to a court-ball without putting on a toilette of two thousand francs signed by Worth, to sit down to table, Madame la Baronne et Servie, even if one had no guests, without having the finest dishes and the choicest wines served by the solemn maître d'hôtel in person, and several lackeys, all these would have been serious offences. How easy— how very easy it comes to one when one is caught up in the machinery of such an existence as this to spend all one's thoughts and feelings on this business which is really devoid of all thought and feeling and in doing this to forget to take any part in the progress of the real world outside i mean the universe or in the condition of one's own world within i mean domestic bliss this is what might perhaps have happened to me but Frederick preserved me from it. He was not the man to allow himself to be torn away and smothered by the whirlpool of Parisian high life. He did not forget, in the world in which we were moving, either the universe or our own hearth. An hour or two in the morning we still kept, devoted to reading and domestic life, and so we accomplished the great feat of enjoying happiness even in the midst of pleasure. For us Austrians, there was much sympathy cherished at Paris— in political conversations there was often a talk about la revanche de Sadova, certainly in the sense that the injustice done to us two years before was to be made good again, as if anything of that sort could make it good again. If blows are only to be wiped out by fresh blows, then surely the thing can never cease. It was just to my husband and me, because he had been in the army and had served the campaign in Bohemia, it was just to us that people thought they could say something more polite or more agreeable than a hopeful allusion to the Ravanche de Sadova, which was in prospect, and which was already treated of as an historical event which would assure the European equilibrium, and was itself ensured by diplomatic arrangements. A slap to be administered to the Prussians on the next opportunity was a necessity in the school discipline of the nations. Nothing tragical would come of the matter, only enough to check the arrogance of certain folks. Perhaps even the whip hanging up on the wall would be enough for this purpose, but if that arrogant fellow should try any of his saucy tricks, he had received fair warning that it would come down upon him in the shape of the Ravanche de Sadova. We, of course, decisively put aside all such consolations. A former misfortune was not to be conjured away by a fresh misfortune, nor an old injustice to be atoned for by a new injustice. We assured our friends that we wished for nothing, except that we might never see the present peace broken again. This was also essentially the wish of Napoleon III. We had so much intercourse with persons whose position was quite close to the emperor that we had plenty of opportunities of becoming acquainted with his political views, as he gave utterance to them in his confidential conversation. It was not only that he wished for peace at the moment, he cherished the plan of proposing to the powers a general disarmament, but for the moment he did not feel his own domestic position in the country secure enough to carry this plan out. There was great discontent boiling and seething among the populace, and in the circle immediately surrounding the throne there was a party which laboured to represent to him that his throne could only be rendered secure by a successful foreign war just a little triumphal promenade to the Rhine, and the splendor and stability of the Napoleonic dynasty were secured. 
Il faut faire grand, was the advice of his councillors, that the war, which was in prospect the year before on the Luxembourg question, had come to nothing and was displeasing to them. The preparations on both sides had gone on so grandly and then the matter had been adjourned. But in the long run, a fight between France and Prussia was certainly inevitable. They were incessantly urging on further in this direction. But only a feeble echo of these matters came to us. One is accustomed to hear that sort of thing resounding in the journals, as regularly as the breakers on the shore. There is no occasion to fear a storm on that account. You listen quite tranquilly to the band which is playing its lively airs on the beach. The breakers form only a soft, unheeded bass accompaniment to them. This brilliant way of life, only too overburdened with pleasure, reached its highest pitch in the spring months. At that time there were added long drives in the bois, in open carriages, numerous picture exhibitions, garden parties, horse races, picnics, and with all this no fewer theatres, or visits, or dinner, or evening parties, than in the depth of winter. We then began to long much for repose. In fact, this sort of life has never its true attraction, except when some flirtation or love affair is combined with it girls who are in search of a husband, women who want a lover, or men who are in search of adventures. For these, every new fight, where it is possible they may meet the object of their dream, possesses a new interest. But for Frederick and me, that I was inflexibly true to my lord, that I never by a single glance gave any one the occasion to approach me with any audacious hopes, I may say without any pride of virtue, it was a mere matter of course. Whether under different relations I should have also resisted all the temptations to which, in such a whirl of pleasure, pretty young ladies are exposed, is more than I can say. But when one carries in one's heart a love so deep and so full of bliss, as I held for my Frederick, one is surely armed against all danger. And as far as he was concerned, was he true to me? I can only say that I never felt any doubt about it. When the summer had returned to the land, when the Grand Prix was over, and the different members of society began to quit Paris, some to Trouville or Dieppe, Biarritz or Vichy, others to Baden-Baden, and a third set to their château, Princess Mathilde to Saint-Gratien, and the court to Compiègne, then we were besieged with requests to select the same destinations for travel, and with invitations to country homes, but we were decidedly indisposed to prolong the campaign of luxury and pleasure which we had carried out in the winter, into a summer one also. I did not wish to return at once to Gromitz. I feared too much the reawakening of painful memories. Besides, we should not have found there the solitude we desired, on account of our numerous relations and neighbours. So we chose once more for a resting place, a quiet corner of Switzerland. We promised our friends in Paris that we should come back next winter, and went on our summer tour with the joy of schoolboys going for their holidays. Now succeeded a time of real refreshment, long walks, long hours of study, long hours of play with the children, and no entries in the red volumes, which last was a sign of freedom from care and spiritual peace. Europe also seemed at that time tolerably free from care and peaceful. At least no black spots were anywhere visible. One did not even hear any more talk about the famous Ravanche de Sadova. The greatest trouble which I experienced at that time was caused by the universal obligation for defence, which had been introduced a year before amongst us Austrians, that my Rudolf some time or other must become a soldier. That was a thing I could not bear. And yet folks dream of freedom. Frederick tried to comfort me. A year of volunteering is not much. I shook my head. 
even if it were but a day, no man ought to be compelled to take upon himself a certain office which perhaps he hates, even for a single day, for during that day he must make a show of the opposite of what he feels, must pretend that he's doing joyfully what he really hates. In short, he's obliged to lie, and I wanted to bring up my son to be true before all things. Then he ought to have been born one or two centuries later, my dearest, replied Frederick. It is only the perfectly free man who can be perfectly true, and we are still poorly off for both things, freedom and truth, in our days. That becomes clearer and clearer to me the deeper I plunge into my studies. Now, in this retirement, Frederick had twice the leisure for his work, and he set about it with true ardour. However happy and content we were with our life in this solitude, still we remained firm in our determination to spend next winter in Paris again. This time, however, it was not with the view of amusing ourselves, but in order to do something practical towards the fulfilment of the task of our lives. In this, it is true, we did not cherish any confidence that we should attain anything, but when a man sees even the possibility of the shadow of a chance offered him to contribute anything towards a cause which he recognizes as the holiest cause on earth, he feels it to be a duty which he cannot refuse to try this chance. Now, in recapitulating, during our familiar talks, the recollections of Paris, we had thought also of that plan of the Emperor Napoleon which had come to our ears by the communications of his confidence. I mean the plan for proposing disarmament to the great powers. It was on this that we based our hopes and our projects. Frederick's researches had brought into his hands Sully's memoirs, in which the plan of Henry IV for peace is described in all its details. We meant to convey an abstract of this to the Emperor of the French, and at the same time to try, through our connections in Austria and Prussia, to prepare both these governments for the propositions of the French government. I could set this on foot by the means of minister, to be sure, and Frederick had, at Berlin, a relative who was in an influential political position and stood very well at court. In December, which was the time we meant to move to Paris, we were prevented. Our treasure, our little Sylvia, fell ill. What anxious hours those were! Napoleon III and Henry IV, of course, were then put in the background. Our child, dying. But she did not die. In two weeks all danger was over. Only the physician forbade us to travel during the worst of the winter's cold, so we put off our departure till March. This sickness and recovery, the danger and the preservation, what a shock they had given our hearts! And how much, though I thought that no longer possible, they had brought them more near to each other still. To tremble in unison before a horrid disaster, one which each fears the more from seeing the other's despair, and to weep tears of joy in common when this disaster has been averted, are things which have a most mighty influence in welding souls together. End of section 68 Read by Sandra in Montreal, 2021